0: I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore.
1: Correct. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast. No Pete today. But Darius, that doesn't mean the name Jonathan Goldfarb won't show up. It does not. It does not. It's funny because I was playing
2: some chess earlier this morning. Oh, there you go. So, so Goldfarb was on the mind. And I appreciate... Our wonderful producer, Jeannie. So, Jeannie's an internet sleuther, I think, because she sent this picture of that included Goldfarb winning some juniors thing. And he was with a bunch of other juniors and they all had their trophies. And so, I must say, chess is hard. Anyways, so shout
1: out to Goldfarb, shout out yeah. to Pete. Well, I feel like Pete is here because we've been debating Boston and Miami still. Yes. On the text thread this morning, I'm like, I'm like, Pete, go, go back and take care of the stuff you have to take care of. But he's really passionate about this Miami topic.
2: You know, we will see. I think we'll get to them in the second segment and previewing tonight's game and what we think is going to happen the rest of the series. But Miami's in a pickle. But again, we'll get to that soon. What we should talk about now, I think, is the Golden State Warriors because the Western Conference has a champion and the Golden State Warriors are returning to the finals. Mike's sixth time in the last eight seasons, they had a couple of down years after Durant left and injuries to Steph and injuries to Clay, and they've rebuilt their team and have their three main guys back, right? The old Splash Brothers and now with Jordan Poole and Von Looney taking on a bigger role and some young guys getting some minutes here or there. Moody has stepped in. We got some Nemanja Vialica last game uh, stepping in for Otto Porter, who has missed the last couple of games. And so the Warriors, they win in five games and now they're waiting. They're waiting to see what's going to happen. What are your takeaways, Mike, from the Warriors or go wherever you want from that series, what the Warriors are doing, Luca and the Mavs, any direction that you want to go here?
1: Yeah. I mean, the last time that you and I saw each other in person was at the Warriors regular season game yeah. against the Lakers. And at that time, it was later in the season and it was a little bit murky what was going to happen because they, they of course, had started out of the box so great. And I remember early in the season, I think our collective feeling on the pod was if we had to pick between them and well, I guess I just speak for myself and you can you can clarify if this is how you felt, but they started out just as well as Phoenix did and i liked their ceiling more than phoenix's ceiling. you know, based in part just on that Steph Chris Paul like who in a series who can sustain the way that they play for longer and you know, with Chris Paul eventually wearing down and then also just some of the support pieces that they had Wiggins looking like he was looking at the time, Poole starting to step up, um Otto Porter like a big athletic wing out there, Draymond looking better, Looney who's become a bigger story in the playoffs certainly looking better. And so then Steph gets hurt, and they go through their different spell. And Clay is, you know, still kind of coming back. And it wasn't completely clear, Darius, but they they really, once the playoffs started, have kicked it into another gear. And to beat Dallas the way that they did, even if Dallas had a decent shot to win Game Two, being up nineteen, they you could just tell by the end of it, Dallas was kind of like, "Yeah, we're not ready yet. You know, yeah. you, we're not going to beat you guys four times." And that mentally. They just couldn't handle Golden State. And I I thought that was uh, interesting.
2: So I listened to you guys talk the last pod and the ups and downs of the regular season and the ebbs and flows. And I think Golden State being such a veteran team, having to reintegrate Clay and doing that at the same time that Poole has had the ascension that he's had, and at the same time that Wiggins had so clearly taken on such a bigger role and found a comfort zone in his second season with the team. I just think that we probably didn't give that enough thought around the complexities of that and, and how that might make them look on any given night. I think a lot of times we talked about Clay as an individual and his ups and downs as, as a player and, his sort of want to maybe get it all back faster and wanting to play to a level by sometimes maybe hijacking possessions a little bit and playing with a bit too much verve and a bit too much force considering the other resources that were available on the team and striking that, that right balance. I don't think those, those concerns seem gone to me. Mike. And everyone has seemingly found their right position within the context of where the team is now. Does Poole catch a little bit of side eye from Clay every now and then for like missing a read or for dribbling the air out of the ball a little bit too much? Sure. I think for the most part, there is great harmony there. And they have so many good offensive players and the way that they leverage the shooting skill of all of those guys, it's just a problem. And the Mavs didn't really find a solution for it all series.
1: So the key part for me too is, and we can look back at the series and there's, I think there's plenty to take out of it though. You know, does, did golden state at a certain point, did they not get the respect, right, that they should have had as a hmm. real title contender, whether for everybody just talking about Phoenix or even thinking about like how well Boston's playing? And they have to finish the deal uh, when they play Miami tonight. But there there was a certain part, I think, in that Memphis series, and maybe it, was the, maybe it was getting blown out on the road, where, I don't know, it doesn't seem like they've been given the benefit of the doubt that they probably feel like they need. And that has helped them. I yep. think that's helped that there's all there's all of a sudden this chip on the shoulder of a super talented, super deep, super expensive roster. Right. That expensive. Yes. Yeah. And they really like in there, they're loaded and they're they've got that beautiful part where they don't they don't feel like it. it's like the Lakers in 1920. Right. We're loaded roster, super motivated, super talented, but maybe not thought of in that way to start.
2: Well, it's interesting because there was always a reason to discount them. And I don't think we looked at context enough. And I'll start with the Phoenix part. Phoenix was favored because they ended up being able to manage their regular season so much better than any other team. And when you're in the top five on both sides of the ball and you're like eight games better than everyone than everyone, you are now put in a position where you should be favored. What you do with that is a whole different thing, but you should be favored at that point. And and so I don't think that part is disrespect to the Warriors to favor the Suns based off of what their profile was. And getting back to the Warriors, Denver was clearly no match for them. And I think it was easier to poke holes in what the Warriors were doing to Denver based off of what Denver had brought to, to the table. And then I think where things got trickier in terms of how to analyze the Warriors was during the Memphis series, because Memphis, and you have brought this up several times on the pod, Mike, but Golden State understands the problems that Memphis specifically offers them. And I think that psychologically, they understand that the players do like, and I think that that impacts their ability to perform a little bit against that specific style. But Memphis is just a bad matchup for them. It, it's in that idea of styles make fights. Memphis is the team that, through their athleticism and their size and their ability to pressure the paint in ways that that really can
1: compromise the Warriors' defense. It's, then, back to, it's back to your rock, paper, scissors analogy a little bit,
2: yes, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what Pete says a lot, right, about how are you going to solve this specific problem? And the that's just a harder equation for the Warriors to get through. And I think that we probably didn't contextualize that enough. And so the fact that the Warriors came out of that at the end, and then also with jaw being hurt too, I think that that made us even think like, well, well, the Warriors are struggling against this Grizzlies team. Like they don't even have jaw. I think it was much easier then at that point to sort of dismiss them in a way that I think is, if not outright fair, it's totally understandable. Now, With them beating the Mavs at the way that they did, I think we've come full circle with them back to where they were at the regular season. All
1: right. I got one more point, Darius, I want to throw at you about Golden State and that series. And then we'll also flip over, talk a little Celtics heat. And then I've got an AD question for you. Uh, And trying to think about the way that AD would fit into what's become a smaller uh,
0: postseason. And can't wait for your take on that. Just go to Indeed.com slash wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: All right, so starting with Golden State here, it was great to see Clay, and you could feel the emotion in the building. You could see yeah. it. Uh, George Sedano, the game was on TNT, but George Sedano did a great interview with him on ESPN because um, he was there covering it for them. And Clay was super emotional, right? About kind of fi- feeling like Clay again. And you know, he's Darius, he's been pushing so hard to yes. feel like Clay again, sometimes to the detriment of himself and the team. But I think this is why he's been pushing so far, so hard like that to try to find the moment. And I still don't expect in the finals that you're going to see him be able to do that routinely. Like you used to, I think it's, a, it's still going to be a bit more hit or miss, but the threat of him doing that is one thing. And I wonder how you juxtapose that with Steph, where he's at with his game right now. You know, eight threes a game, shooting 42%, looking a little bit more like Steph yeah. in that series than he did against Memphis. How do you contextualize their backcourt and where they are now compared to where they needed to be when they won their titles?
2: I think they're almost there. And I think with Poole, they probably are there, to tell you the truth. Pool's emergence as a player supplements both Steph and Clay in ways that really just make the Warriors problematic <laughs> offensively. Because in theory, you can have two of those guys on the court at any given time, and the defense has to treat them a certain way. I'm glad you brought up Clay. I think we all have a soft spot for Clay. I know, too, because of your long work with Michael. And him being Clay's dad, you probably even have more of an affinity for Clay just based off of family ties. But Clay is just one of those universally loved players. He's eccentric. He's got a down to earth style in terms of personality, and he's got like a badass sort of attitude and game the way that he plays in terms of confidence and just that want to get after it. And he will put his foot on your neck and he will compete on both ends of the floor. There's like, he, he, he brings so many qualities to to the table as both a human being and as a player,
1: there is a reason why he's universally loved. Yeah. And just an important part of that too, is that he cares and people yeah. respond to that. You know, you can, if you, you can see somebody caring about their craft And caring about what they do, it's just it's easier to relate to that. And Ernie Johnson even brought it up right when he interviewed him in the postseason. He's like he said something along the lines of, I think, every NBA fan, uh, you know, maybe outside of in that evening, Dallas. Right. Yeah. could feel that could feel that for Clay. And that doesn't happen a ton.
2: No, it doesn't. And then when you add on sort of the redemption story and the comeback element of this and like the injuries, it's it's just a great story for Clay. And and for the Warriors in terms of Steph Steph may not be right at the peak of his powers but he is like still in the 98th or 97th percentile of that um the thing that he's grown into mike is he is he is stronger than what he was 4 years ago and his reads in terms of pass shot Drive jumper. He is operating at the highest level I think he's ever been in terms of that sort of decision making. Who is defending me? What is my advantage? How are they playing me? And now what is my response? To that, and that's the part where I think that he's creating stuff for his team in in ways that is just hard for opponents to match.
1: I want you to continue here. Just one one note, one stat that I thought was interesting. So his turnovers are down this postseason compared to what they've usually been, and I wonder if that plays into what you were just talking about. But two point six turnovers for Steph—that's pretty low considering yeah. all of the types of defenses that he encounters. Like I think people sometimes just talk about Steph like he's careless um, offensively. And he is from time to time, but he's also dealing with just ridiculously slanted defenses, you know, coming at him, doing anything they can to get the ball out of his hands and rushing at him. The second that he touches the ball on the perimeter, like consider the difference even between him and LeBron, LeBron catches the ball at the top, at the top of the key three point line. You can't just send two dudes sprinting at him, right? He look over the top and then he'll make the pass over the top. Whereas Steph, he's getting that blitz. All the time. And I think that has to do with the turnovers, but yet they're still down. So 2.6, he's usually over three. And even for his career uh, in the postseason, Darius, he's at 3.4. So, you know, that's a significant difference.
2: Yeah. I just think that he's driving more to score now instead of driving the pass. And his finishing at the rim has always been top level. He's not often thought about in terms of his skill level around the basket as like a Kyrie because Kyrie's finishing is so flashy and it's so amazing and left right hand and all of that but Steph brings a lot of that to the table too and he's got such great touch and so again i think their backcourt to answer your question again their backcourt's close to where it was in terms of their starters but with pool i think they're right there or even at a higher level than what they were in the past just because yep. of pool unless you want to continue with the Warriors I think this backcourt talk is a good place to pivot to the other
1: series let's get there let, let me let me make one tiny point uh Kobe finishing at the rim I always felt like was underrated and yes I and I learned that in person more I think than anything else when you know people coming into the Laker job people like, oh Kobe takes all these contested turnaround fadeaway twos and whatever and then I, I got there and I'm like oh wait he can get to the bucket Whenever he wants, he can finish with either hand. He can ham on you. He's got English. He's got all the stuff around the rim. So I, I just wanted to throw that in there real quick.
2: All the reverse backhanded layups, the uh, one foot takeoff finish, the two foot takeoff finish, yep. the double the short clutch. floater,
1: the short finger roll, the the baby hook, whatever you need, baby.
2: Mike, you don't score 30,000 something points in the league without having like just a natural feel for putting the ball in the basket and If you watched Kobe when he was a 17 year old in summer league, all of those shots were sort of you saw them like little deceleration. The stuff that Luca does where you're decelerating and then putting that shot over the top. Like, sorry, we're on a Kobe thing now, but
1: you know, what? hey, never have to apologize for a Kobe tangent. okay? (laughs) but
2: (laughs) you remember, Mike, the the shot that he hit against the Suns, I think, in 06. Where he, the game winner was at the foul line, right? Like after the Luke Walton tip ball, the jump ball, right? That Luke Walton won, they tap it out. But the shot that he hit to force overtime was after the smush steal. And then he got the ball in the open court and he looked like he was going full board to go to the basket. But what he ended up doing was decelerating and shooting that little floater as he's going out of bounds. And that sort of touch. And the ability to sort of embody control, right? Those are the things that Kobe brought to his finishing around the basket that I thought really was at an elite, elite, elite level that off, that isn't often talked about in terms of what his package was as a scorer. So I'm glad you mentioned that just because I'm always down to, to reminisce about our guy.
1: Yeah, I, I had an idea that you'd be OK with that quick tangent. All right. So why don't we take another break and then let's pop over uh, to the Eastern Conference. All right, game six coming up, and I'm having a hard time seeing Miami win this game. I have enough respect for that franchise and these players to think that it'll it might be a little more competitive than Boston thinks. You know, they might make a run early, but mix the mix of the the injuries and just how Miami's playing at the time, and I think that I think this Boston team is so difficult to play against. With their defense, not just in the starting five, but then, you know, even adding a Grant Williams and a Derek White, two of the better defenders in the league that come off the bench, you know, for yeah. them and, and add to their. Start. I just think that's a lot to play against. And I think that's got to do some with with Miami missing some shots. That's been part of the debate that Pete and I have been having. Uh, and just th- the general way that Miami is, is having to try to find ways to score and how yeah. much they have to commit to playing a certain, you know, ridiculous style of, of pressure defense. Um, I, I just think it's all been a lot, but we didn't get your take as Pete and I were talking Boston, Miami. And so I'm, I was, and I think I may, I even mentioned you a few times. I wonder where Darius would come in here. Would he come in in the middle? Like, so I've, I've been curious for your take on the series. It's tricky because I understand what a
2: point that you've been making. And I think that it's a real one is that when you ask your role players to defend at the level that the heat are asking their role players to defend at, they're going to miss shots. And, the ask is so high and the pressure, I don't even want to say of the moment, but just these games, every shot feels more important. And, and then when your legs aren't all the way there, it's just difficult. I do also think, though, that the Celtics are conceding certain shots in order to keep Miami away from the basket and trying to make sure that they gum things up in a certain way. And the Heat just haven't been able to make them pay. Spolstra has spoken a couple of times about the shot quality and I do think that he's not wrong when pointing that out. The thing is though is that I come back to like the injury stuff that the Heat are dealing with more than what Boston is. I think it's easy to um to highlight the injuries based off of whoever's losing, right? And so like when when um When Boston didn't have Smart and Horford and then they lose, it's easy to say, oh, well, they didn't have Smart and Horford. When they won without Smart, I think that that diminishes, right? And Tatum's dealing with a shoulder, right? And and there's a lot of – and no one is 100% at this point. But the Heat, based off of their makeup as a team, I think they need all of their guys and they need all of their guys to play at a certain baseline of of a level and with hero out that's a big blow for them and with and jimmy and lowry have not been able to reach that baseline level that they need to play at and that's why these games have gone the way that they have i will say though mike that if boston comes in thinking that they're just going to win this game because they're at home and They've got all the momentum and they do like, I'm not counting out Jimmy Butler. Like one of these games, his knee may just feel better. And one of these games, Lowry just might hit some shots. Right. And if that's tonight, then you go to game seven and that's when anything can happen. So Boston needs to be on their a game this game, because if they falter and they let a team with the sort of scrappiness that the Heat have, and we know that the elimination game is the hardest game to win, right? It's hardest to close a team team out. That it's tricky for, for Boston here, but, but I'm kind of in the position where Miami just doesn't have enough at this point. Not taking anything away from Boston, but I would have loved to have seen Miami more at full strength in order to, and and at least have Jimmy be where he needs to be, because I think that they can then supplement in, in other ways. So, so that's kind of where I am at
1: here. Yeah. I mean, some of this, sometimes when I'm watching a series like this, so I, if I had to pick just in terms of a rooting interest, I would certainly be rooting for Miami, you know, to beat Boston. But since I picked Boston in six, there's part of that part of the brain where I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to have to talk about this right. with Pete on the podcast, right? So you're kind of rooting for what you picked. And yes. I, I'm like, wait, I texted this. I'm like, damn it, Pete, you got me defending Boston. Like, you know, this is, this sucks. And one of the guys that we've been talking about is Max Strus. So Strus, in the first three games was terrific, right? Uh, he was, let's see, he was like nine for 22 from three. He's rebounding the basketball, you know, he's making the right plays and his shot has just completely gone away where he's missed 11 straight threes 0 for four Oof. and then 0 for seven. And he's not hitting twos either. Like he's so what happened? And one of the things is you mentioned Jimmy Butler. So Butler has been terrible uh, because of his knee mostly in those last two games. And so those types of shots, and there are a couple of exceptions. In, in fact, one that Pete sent a screenshot of where Strews is all along. But I think that for the most part, when the defense doesn't have to really worry about Butler in the way that it did early, then they can mentally and physically, the combination of both strews catching that ball, knowing that he has to hit those shots, right? Because, you know, Boston lost game four by 20. They lost game five by 13. Uh, Excuse me. You're talking about Miami. Yes. Yes, Miami Miami lost. Yes. So, so yeah. So if strews hits, you know, Two out of four in that first game. What do they do? They lose by you know fourteen instead. And they and this is the whole make miss. But if they and if he hits a couple more threes like as usual, does that mean that they win game five? I think it's more that the pressure on role players to have to do a certain thing when the stars aren't pulling their weight and aren't making the defense really adjust. That's just what happens, and that happens because of a talent gap overall uh, on the team. Well, I will say too that some
2: of that is flow of the game stuff too, Mike, and and I'm a big believer in just game flow and like what is i know that people can believe or not believe in momentum but i've played sports in my life and when you feel like things are going your way there is a bit more verve that you have and the other team does get on their heels a little bit and that pressure of the moment can shift and you do start to feel that a little bit more. And so to me, it's never as simple as, well, they lost by 20. If this guy hits two more shots, then maybe they only lose by 14. To me, it, it always depends on what is the moment of the game in which those shots fall? How important are they or not? We've talked a bunch about, um, are you a garbage tie ball star or are you an all-star all-star? Because well, if you a garbage type all-star, you like there's moments where those threes don't mean anything. And then there are moments where those threes feel like they're worth 10 points based off of the tenor and tone of the moment.
1: Of course, you're right. And of course, this is something that, like, so Struz hit that big shot, right, to, uh, yeah. to secure that road win in, in game three, which was which was giant size relative to other threes. And we do the same thing when we're looking at the schedule sometimes and I I guess I say we I want to try to remove myself because I really try not to do this and even though I just did as a hypocrite so oh if only this shot would have gone in you know then they would have won that game but what you don't do is well if that shot in the previous game they won had gone out then they would have lost that game right we only seem to look at these things in the positive perspective for whatever our rooting interest is generally as a people um, it's a I think it's a coping mechanism (laughs) it's it's in a sense I go back to
2: game one against Portland in the playoffs of the 2020 season, and I was having conversations with some Portland fans, and they're like, well, don't talk about how bad y'all shot, right, talking about the Lakers, like, look at how we shot, we're not going to shoot that bad again next game, but... When you dig in deeper, you understand what the factors are that cause people to miss shots and what's the shot quality and and so many other factors, right? And that's why at this point yeah. it'd be it'd be silly to pick against the Celtics at this point, because with they're surrendering the shots that they're surrendering to the people that they're surrendering surrendering them to for a reason. And until the other team proves that they're going to beat that, then that's just what what it is. And, and and so I'm not counting the Heat out, but they've got a daunting task. Maybe the Heat will find some um some inspiration in Draymond Green saying, I, you know, I don't know. I know you're asking me who we're going to play. I think he was responding to Shaq like who we want to play. I'm not telling you who we want to play. I think we're going to play the Celtics. Right. And so Draymond Green is saying he thinks the Celtics are going to win on the eve of Miami having a chance to save their season. So we'll see how that goes tonight. But Mike, let's shift to the Lakers, because I know that you wanted to talk a little bit of AD and you had an AD question for me. You have not prepped me, so I'm going in blind to this. So let's talk some Anthony Davis here.
1: No, I just I really want your thoughts on how AD how he plays against these types of defenses that we're seeing. And mm-hmm. I don't need to ask you so much about the defensive end for AD. Cause I think we all know there there's not yep. like a question. I mean, he's, he's got, you know, although we can, we can get to that, but so Boston and I think we can do what Draymond green has done. And if, and if we end up being wrong and it's Miami, then we'll talk about AD against that Miami D we also have already seen it um, two years ago in the finals, but this Boston defense, which is playing some all-time defense, they, they, they've really been that good. And then on the other hand, Golden State has been a suffocating defense that does not get enough credit uh, for how they play defense. And without kind of a – now, Robert Williams is more of a pure center in some ways, uh, in, in, the, in the pure in the sense of like the Dwight Howard type, the screen roll dunk, the defense, although he gets out to the perimeter better than a lot of guys. And then, of course, they have Horford in Golden State's case they have Draymond Green and Kevon Looney and I just I can't I just can't help but watch and think about AD and, and was wondering how you thought he might fit into this whole big mix uh, and what the qualities that he has are. So if there's any
2: singular defender who I think gives AD issues it's it's probably Draymond. Draymond has the right mix of foot speed and length and smarts and tactics, right? And the lower center of gravity and I think that um if left to his own devices to just defend AD one-on-one, he can limit AD's efficiency in ways that can be problematic. Which is why, like, one of the things I want for the Lakers in general is a more skilled guard where you have to go over the top of screens because then that opens up AD in ways where you can then get him going downhill as a finisher, which then I think – only breeds more and more confidence in his isolation game because then the jumper starts to fall and there's all of these 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 other
1: things. Ooh, to ooh, me, let the me, only real. Go Darius. ahead, jump in. No, 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 no. I, I just I want to pause you on Green for because do you think that in a series which we've never seen, um, well, AD did go against Golden State and play great in the series for the Pelicans, which yeah. which I guess we actually could point back to. Um, but if with this Lakers group, like I I wonder if they're the thing, if AD could figure out essentially, right. What Draymond, how he's playing him and how can eventually sort of wear him down with his size, unlike most guys could do against Draymond.
2: Yeah. I do think that it would be a great matchup. And I do think that AD will, will win enough of those possessions to make it matter. Right. And this is where the difference between having AD is your, number one guy and potentially your number your one a or your number two guy that changes the calculus for the opponent so much right because if ad is the only guy you have to worry about you can sell out against him in certain ways and then he's going to have to adjust how he plays but left on an island one-on-one to play against any player in the entire league I think AD is going to win plenty of those matchups against any level defender now especially over the course of of a series where like you said he can leverage his size and remember too like AD is so good at like going to the offensive glass or running in transition or all of these other ways in which suddenly he's got 25 points and you're like well damn how does he have 25 already and it's the middle of the third quarter and it's because he got to the foul line seven times and he got two putbacks and he got and he got a dunk and a layup in in transition and oh he hit a three-pointer and it's just like well damn okay that's how he 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 did it and so ad's range and his ability to impact um the scoreboard in so many ways i think that that that's where he can live and eat, even against elite individual defenders. Against Boston, it's a different thing. Boston has felt comfortable switching against AD, and they felt comfortable putting guys, whether it's Smart or Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum, they have switched against him. And they felt comfortable living with that and showing him late doubles or swarming him. And I think that's still the kryptonite for AD is when you swarm him with multiple smaller players is how is he making his reads? Is he making them quick enough? And what are the automatics to play out of that? Because the worst version of AD is the tentative version, the version where he's not getting up enough shot attempts. And that's typically because... Teams are saying, you're not going to be us. We're going to switch and swarm. And that switch and swarm idea is one where it's harder for him to navigate that. And that's where I think he needs to show the most growth as as an offensive player still.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point to think about the way that he that he plays um, against Boston and what the it's just a harder thing to adjust to. I guess when a team can play you like that and when they've got that kind of perimeter talent. Um, the, I think the thing that helps then in that case though, is having LeBron on the other side of the floor, right. Where eventually you can compromise the defense a little bit, but yeah, I, I went back to that, that series that AD had against, and this was the full, this was the Kevin Durant, you know, joining the Warriors team and AD in that series averaged 28 points, 14.8 boards, two blocks, 2.2 steals uh, on 48%, uh, 47% from the field. He only took, let's see, he took two and a half threes a game, got the three throw line five and a half times or five point two times. So that was that was eye opening for me. And that, wow, like even this Golden State defense. And at the same time, they were sort of like they weren't really in danger of losing any of those games other than the one game three. Right. Uh, That uh, it was like that was a 33 and 18 game for A.D. So they were it wasn't like they were just letting him cook. But they were they were kind of content to let him cook, knowing that there wasn't going to be enough around him from Holiday or from Rondo and from the rest of those, those Pelicans, right? So that that's where I get my curiosity, A, on what would happen against this current team and what would happen against Boston. And I'm it's so difficult to forecast what's going to be there next year because we have no idea what this Lakers yep. roster is really going to look like. It's just, it's it's just something I, I want to get your take on. So I, I appreciate hearing that.
2: Can I just say, too, that um, against the Celtics this year, the game that stands out to me, obviously, is the one that the Lakers won, where they won 117 to 102. And I remember in the first half of that game, we were all pretty frustrated with AD. The Lakers were playing in drop coverages a bunch, and we were going over the top of screens against Schroeder, and then they were rolling downhill with Robert Williams, and Williams got a couple of dunks with AD sort of playing in drop coverages. And then the second half, Mike, the Lakers started to change things up more, and then they ended up winning by 15 points. AD didn't have this amazing offensive game. He only had 17 points, and I think, how many field goals did did he take? He went seven for 13, Yeah, right? He had 17 points, but he was a plus 17 on the night. He had two blocks, two steals, three assists. He had 16 rebounds four of those on the offensive end. And this is what makes Anthony Davis special, right? We can talk about his offense. And I think against most teams, he's gonna be the type of focal point offensive player that at least requires a certain amount of attention. And that's going to help open things up for teammates regardless. But his the way that he impacts a game is multifaceted. And that's what makes him an elite player and And a first level or – and basically a candidate to always make first team all NBA, right? Whether he will make it or not is going to depend on health and a bunch of other factors. But he is that caliber of player. And so I'd feel very comfortable going into any series against any of these playoff teams that we saw this season with Anthony Davis standing next to LeBron James, which is what, again – is why going back to conversations that you and Pete have had this week is the import then of like what you surround those guys with and how you build out the rest of the team. So, but there will be many conversations on that end of the next month or two.
1: All right. Well, no doubt. It's been great catching up, Darius. Uh, I know that Pete will be back on Monday as we get through. And, and at that point, of course, we will know what the finals is going to be. Um, so we will preview all of that. And, uh, you know, we may even get a goal for our reference Enjoy your weekend, guys. Uh, thanks for hanging with us.
0: James has got it in low to Mikhail. Mikhail
2: wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tipped to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic. Got it. Magic fires. again. Left.
0: That next on the winner. It. It's on the way. Kobe no! Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds, with his eighth block shot that ties an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans okay, standing so around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed—a Laker to get MVP chance right, in, in, in Boston. Of all places. Are you
1: kidding me, Kobe? hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal! Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by
0: Bell. There's the go move. Two, one, miss it! it. One over. One the victory. It's over. Shot popping out of five. Oh, yeah. Bryant. Yeah.